Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land. Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land, and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we've been following this story from Exodus, tracing Moses and how God has used him to lead and shape and form these people. And now we move to Deuteronomy. Both these books are part of the Torah, or what is sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch, Penta being the word for five in Greek, so the first five books. We're looking at the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes those are referred to as the books of Moses because traditionally it has been said that these, are to be, these have been written by Moses. But a passage like today begins to raise some questions about the authorship. And these kind of passages gave rise to the historical critical method of Bible study where people begin to look a little more closely at what the text actually says. And back in the 1800s, a couple of scholars in particular began to look really closely at this and began to write about it and say, this is clearly written about Moses after his death. So wait a second. If it's written after he died, then he could not be the author. So there's something else going on here. These perhaps are a collection of writings or an editor has pulled these together, but something else is happening and people began to study this really closely and it gave rise to a whole group of people who now devote their lives as Bible scholars to studying the scriptures and elucidating those for us so that we might understand them better. 
in this great work they've done, finally they came to the point where they were able to identify different strands of tradition woven together to provide us these first five books that we have today. If you were here during the tenure of Dr. Biggs, I bet you could tell me what the four strands are. J, E, D, and P. You remember those, I bet. The D portion of that stands for Deuteronomy. And that's the part of the books that we're in today. Deuteronomy ends up being a retelling of the story that if you began to read from Genesis and Exodus and on, you would have read much of it before. Deuteronomy kind of recasts it and recalls the great days of God working through Moses, leading these people out of slavery, giving them the Ten Commandments and the laws by which they could live as a covenant community where they could represent to the world what God wants in a people. They become the people of God. But when we get to this last chapter, Deuteronomy 34, from where we read today, we realize if we've been reading through this that this is the very end of the generation of those who came from Egypt. Only three of them are left. All others have died. Only Moses, Joshua, and Caleb are left. And in the passage we read today, of course, Moses' life comes to an end. He has this last great experience with God where God leads him up the mountain and he's able to see the vast horizons of land that God has been promising to these people. And now he tells Moses, there they are. The people will enter. But you, you do not get to go. And Moses dies. Verse 8 tells us, that the people mourn for 30 days. They have a bit of a crisis, a little bit of a turning point here, you see, because Moses had been the one that was not only the lawgiver, but he had been the one that had communicated with God on behalf of the people. He had been the one who felt called by God and risked his life and his livelihood and all that was important to go to Egypt and rescue these people to face up to Pharaoh and then finally lead the people out of Egypt and then lead them for these 40 years through the desert, even through all the mumbling and grumbling and complaining, Moses remains faithful as their leader. And now he is gone. He has died. And they are mourning. And then in the very next verse, verse 9, there's this rather abrupt turn in the text that begins to tell us about Joshua. Joshua is going to be the new leader that's going to lead them into this new land. There's a whole new generation now of people who have to decide if they're going to follow God, if they're going to trust God, if they're going to follow Joshua as God's man. They have a decision to make about this change in leadership. Now the text tells us that Joshua is called and appointed by God. And so it's easy for us to read it and say, well, of course they're going to follow. But hindsight is so much easier than making decisions in the midst of real time. Change can be difficult. Whenever we change a leader, people begin to 
become uncomfortable, sometimes questioning whether or not the new leader can be the person the old one was. Can this new person really lead us into the future? We not only see it in the biblical text, we see it in country after country today in politics. Right about any time there's an election in any part of the world, right after that there's news reports that people are questioning the election or the person elected and should they give them loyalty and authority and trust. But it not only happens in national politics, it happens in organizations. You see it when a president or a CEO retires or steps down or is replaced. There's all these questions that begin to swirl about the new leader and the direction that the new leader will take them. And is this going to work? And can we trust this fellow? But you also sometimes see it in volunteer organizations, in civic organizations. You even see it in churches when pastors change. Often there's a lot of turbulence in the congregation talking about whether or not the new person is the right person. Can we trust this one? Are we going to follow? Do we believe that this one can represent for us what we need in a pastor? Does this one represent Christ or can this one speak to us about the things of God? Whenever a new leader comes, the people have to decide if they want to support the new person. There's a decision to be made. In our text today, in this passage, we're dealing with that kind of transition and the text gives three reasons why the people should support their new leader, Joshua. You see them in verse 9. Here's the first one. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Full of the spirit of wisdom. Wisdom is a good characteristic for a leader to have. It means that person can make sound judgments. Leaders have to make lots of decisions time after time, day in and day out. They're making decisions. It's good to know that your leader is full of wisdom and is going to make good decisions. It's good to know that the person has the wherewithal to look at the current events, but not only current events, but be able to look to the past and draw the best out of the past, but also have the ability to look to the future and perceive new opportunities and new places that God might be leading. This passage says the people can believe in Joshua and can support Joshua because he was that kind of person. He was full of the spirit of wisdom. They're given a second reason to support him. It's in verse 9 as well. Right after we read, Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, then it says, because Moses laid his hands on him. Moses has laid his hands on him. In a sense, Moses has endorsed Joshua before he dies. If you've read through Deuteronomy, and if you have your Bible there, flip back to chapter 31. This is where we're told about this. Verse 7 and 8, chapter 31 says, Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and bold, for you are the one who will go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their ancestors to give them, and you will put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. 
Do not fear or be dismayed. So we know there's a new leader coming. We know he's going to lead them into a new land where they are going to live. But what Deuteronomy is telling us is it's the same God. It's the same God that was leading you through Moses is now here with you through Joshua. You can trust him. You can believe in him. You can support him. Because he, he knows the same God that Moses knows. Then we're given a third reason, which is also in this same verse. It's telling us about Joshua. And it says he does as the Lord commands. You can support him and trust him because he does as the Lord commands. If you look in the last part of the ninth verse, it says, And the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. So they're believing and trusting in him. But this has all been set up again back in chapter 31 and verse 14 this time. It's where we were told the Lord said to Moses, Your time to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting so that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting or the tabernacle, that's the place or the presence of God. And so just as Moses has been attentive to the commands and the call of God, here it comes again that they are to go, and Moses goes just like he has done, but now this time Joshua is right beside him. So we have this scene where Moses obeys and Joshua obeys, and then the people have that decision to make. And in this instance, they decide that they're going to follow Joshua and obey God as well. When the people follow God and listen to God's instructions, they find life. That's one of the themes of Deuteronomy is that when we listen to God and follow the ways of God, we find life and we find it in the way that God intends for it to be. We find a life that God has designed for us to be able to live in community, enjoy one another, enjoy fellowship with God, and enjoy a life that God has created for us. A couple of weeks ago, my mother's brother, my uncle Charles Dell Miller, died. He was 88 years old. He had lived a long and full life. But he was a shy man. He didn't much go for large groups of people. He didn't really want to be in anybody's attention at all. And since he didn't like crowds, he certainly didn't like big churches like this. He was kind of anxious about being in a crowd. If he had a choice of being in a large group or a small group, he would choose the small group for sure. If he found himself in a crowd and he had a choice of whether he wanted to be in the front or the back, he would choose the back. He was very fond of saying, what I'm going to try to do is blend into the woodwork. He didn't want to be noticed. He didn't want to be in large groups of people. So even though he was raised a Methodist and died a Methodist, 
Besides his childhood, he probably worshiped most with us once he retired and moved to Tulsa, and he could watch on Channel 8 because he didn't want to come where there were a whole group of people and he might be put on the spot for any particular thing. But he was a vital part of our family. He wasn't married in the early years of his adulthood when I was born, so he was with our family a lot. He was that cool uncle that came into town with a new car and took us for a ride or took us to the Dairy Queen. He brought us gifts. He took us on trips. It was wonderful. And then about midpoint in his life, in his early 40s, he had a friend who needed him to come to Texas to help him in a job. And up to that point in my uncle's life, he had never married. He had been with our family through all those years, but we just assumed that he was going to be a bachelor for the rest of his life. But sometimes strange things happen, and he went down to West Texas to work for six weeks. And one Saturday night, he was doing his laundry in the laundry room of an apartment complex, and he met a woman. And he fell in love like that. We were all stunned. But he had found the one. He was ready to get married after all those years. But not only that, she came with two kids. So he was going to have an instant family. Because he didn't like crowds, even though they were getting married, he called my mom on a Sunday night and said, I'm going to get married. I know you want to be there. So we live in this part of Oklahoma. He's in far west Texas. He says, we're getting married in the morning at 9 o'clock. If you want to be a part of it, come ahead. <laughs> My mom knew what he was doing. He didn't want a crowd at his wedding. He did the same thing to his parents. And his mother said, well, the only thing I'm going to ask you to do, Charles, is don't go to the justice of the peace. Go to the Methodist pastor. You're a Methodist. Go to the Methodist pastor. So he said, okay, so the next morning they got in the phone book. They started calling, trying to find a Methodist pastor because both of them were there temporarily for employment purposes. And they found one. They drove to the fellow's house. And being a good Methodist pastor, we're all taught that we should counsel with people before we marry them to make sure everything's on the up and up. So they started counseling with him, and he began to ask them questions. And they're like, how long have you met? And it had been just a few weeks. And where do you live? And they both were there temporarily. And have you ever been married before? And my aunt had been married and divorced. My uncle had never been married. He kind of scowled at that. And there's kids involved. How many? Two teenagers. He was alarmed. <laughs> he wasn't sure this was going to work. But they assured him that they were in love and they were committed to making this work. And so he did their wedding. And they were married for the rest of their lives. And they were the love of each other's life. So family was really important. And my uncle was a simple man. He didn't, like I say, like crowds. He didn't like a lot of fanfare. He really preferred just to go to work and do his job and at the end of the day, pick up his wages and go back home and be with his family. So even though he was a Methodist his whole life, most of his service was not done in a church building, but was done with people with whom he affiliated or associated or worked with. 
So if you talk to any of his neighbors where he ever lived, they would tell you, oh, he was always ready to lend a hand. He would help me with anything we ever needed. If you'd ask a co-worker what kind of worker was he, they would say, oh, he was a hard worker. He did his work, but he would also help us with ours. He was a fair man. He was willing to do his part and even more. He had that spirit of generosity he was very thrifty but he had a spirit of compassion and generosity if he knew someone had a need he was willing to help them out he was that way with us as family even in his later years with encroaching dementia anytime my mom went to visit him he would say to her now sis if you ever need anything you let me know now this is an 88 year old man who has dementia and in his wheelchair his mind and his body are failing him and yet that spirit of generosity and desire to help was still alive. He was one of those kind of people, kind of a Ten Commandments kind of guy. I mean, he wanted to honor his family. He wanted to honor his father and his mother. He wouldn't commit adultery. He wouldn't murder anyone. He wouldn't even covet anything somebody else had. He was a guy who wanted to do the right thing and strive to do that his entire life. In the last few weeks of his life, he would often say to us, this is such a nice place where I live. This is such a wonderful life. I don't know what I've done to deserve this. But we knew. We knew what he had done. He had served people his entire life. And it's just like Deuteronomy says over and over again, when we live as God teaches, we live long and we do well. Amen.